Welcome. Come on in. Pull up a stool. And let me pour you a drink. And let's talk a little noir at the bar. Thanks for joining us today for another episode of Noir at the Bar, where you get to hear some of your favorite authors reading from their books and short stories. Now, this season, our guest readers are authors that are going to be attending the Left Coast Crime in Seattle, April 11th to 14th. So not only do you get to hear them on the show here, you can go visit them, meet them, and maybe get a book signed. Well, I'm sitting down here with Wanda Morris, a fabulous award-winning crime writer, and also a Toastmaster for uh, Left Coast Crime, and um, which I'm going to get need some points for because... Um, I'm going to be Toastmastering next year, and I'm a little terrified. So, Wanda, you got to, like, figure it all out. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck to you if you're taking tips. <laughs> <laughs> so you are reading from your new book, What You Leave Behind, and um, I will leave you to it. I'm excited to hear. Great. Thanks, John. All right, I'll be reading from the prologue and then a portion of Chapter 1. The island was ours, and we roamed everywhere except for one place. Dunbar Creek. Some folks believed it was haunted, filled with mystical, unseen spirits. Other folks called Dunbar Creek the end of the world. It very well could have been, too, after what happened there. Way back in 1808, the government passed a law that declared there was to be no more ships transporting our African people to this country to turn them into slaves. But evil men with no hearts or souls continued to work in clandestine ways, even after the slave trade had been outlawed for years. Those mongrels on two legs anchored their boats on quiet creeks and rivers along the Georgia coast. Small ships that left lands and broke family bonds, it would take their cargo generations to knit back together. One blue-black night just before dawn peeked over the horizon, a small schooner, called the York, slinked along Dunbar Creek to unload a cargo of West Africans known as the Igbo people of Nigeria. The old folks told us how the Igbo rose up and took over that ship. They were dirty, tired, but still strong enough to drive their captors overboard. But other vile men waited for those brave souls when the boat hit the shore, men ready and waiting to get them to plantations across the south. After they were taken off the ship, they were shackled once more, chained together with freedom slipping from their grasp. The Igbo ancestors knew what lay ahead and decided in that moment what their future would be. They chose freedom. Together, they walked into the water, shoulder to shoulder, their chains still intact. The farther they walked, the closer they came to freedom. When the final ripple of water erased the last trace of them, they were free. Some folks say the Igbo people drown themselves deliberately by walking into Dunbar Creek. But not me. I think those brave souls walked into the water and flew home. Imagine it. A person could be so disgusted with the thought of living in bondage that death seemed a better option. Like the Igbo people, perhaps there is a better option for me. And one day, I'll fly home too. Chapter 1 Dead people don't talk to the living. It should have been like any other drive out to the island to hear her voice. Simply get in the car and ride and ride until the tears blurred my vision. 
making it impossible for me to see and forcing me to pull over to the side of the road. On really bad days, I drive for over an hour, sometimes winding up in a different city or town. Street signs and landmarks shifting in the periphery as I went chasing after someone I couldn't see or touch. Once I drove all the way to Savannah from Daddy's house in Brunswick, but I never once went to the cemetery where she was buried, because to me, she wasn't in some dark hole in the ground. She was with me. I needed to believe that or else I would die too. Depending on the day, sometimes I go to a park to sit and listen to the brief voicemail she'd left on my phone. I only had a few because it was rare that I didn't pick up a call from her. Even if I was in a meeting, I picked up her calls. Now I relied on the soft fragments of brain tissue that conjured up memories and the deep well of despair in my heart to connect me to the woman I cherished more than anyone else in the world, Elizabeth Wood, Libby to her family and friends, Ma to me. Her death had landed like a boxer's blow inside my chest sweeping away my breath and bringing me to my knees. A year later, and I was still having a hard time navigating the indescribable grief because the person who usually helped me through any heartache I ever had was now the source of it. Shortly after she died, I'd swear I could still hear her voice, the cadence of it as she talked about some church gossip or giggled at some joke daddy had told her. It was silly, I know. Maybe it was some sort of grieving mechanism to get me through. When you're a grown woman and you lose a parent, people expect you to power through the grief. You have a job, responsibilities, you're an adult. You're supposed to know that death is a part of life. And if you looked at me on the outside, I was all that. But on the inside, I was a broken mess. And as if losing Ma wasn't enough, that imaginary boxer hit me with a one-two combo. Two months after Ma's death, Lance came home one night quietly ate dinner with me, and then proceeded to tell me he was filing for divorce. He told me I wasn't the same since Ma's death. Who is after you lose someone you love? The truth of the matter is that Lance was exactly the same. Things I had stupidly tolerated before as a small ripple in our marriage, flirtatious interactions with restaurant wait staff, women we encountered in a store who were unusually comfortable with them, became a tsunami. The sudden appearance of receipts for jewelry I didn't own and dinners at restaurants I'd never been to became ground zero for the ugly destruction of a marriage that had been a fragile structure from the start. Much of what happened between us I still hadn't told anyone, including Daddy. Perhaps that's the way life is. You don't just deal with one bad thing at a time. Life throws a stream of adversities at you with no break in between. Ma used to call it a season. A job loss follows a death in the family. A cancer diagnosis comes right before a car accident. It's like a nonstop battle with the universe to see if you're strong enough to fight your way through the layers of misfortune and heartache. But Ma always said, seasons pass. With no real home of my own and my life in tatters, I left Atlanta and moved back to the house I grew up in in Brunswick, Georgia. The prodigal daughter returned home with a divorce settlement and a set of emotional baggage heavy enough to kill a decent-sized bear under its weight. I needed what the old folks used to call a day clean, a new start, a fresh day. Wanda, that was beautiful. I was gripped from the beginning. I'm so excited to read this novel. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you're exploring with it? Sure. 
So Dean Wood is an attorney, and you obviously just heard um, how her life has fallen apart. So she returns home to Brunswick, Georgia, which is uh, along the coastal islands of Georgia. And uh, she goes out driving one day and stumbles upon a widower uh, who lives in a trailer on some oceanfront property. Uh, when he goes missing, she goes in search of what happened to this guy. And what she uncovers is um, devastation among her community. Um, she uncovers a political scheme that takes away um, the land and property of poor and disenfranchised people. Under what is really a legal um, concept, it's called heirs' property. And so people die without a will or some designation of what happens to their property after they die. The property becomes, uh, or a share of it, becomes inherited by everyone that they're related to. And all it takes is one person to sell their share. And then the land can be forced um, into a partition sale. And so a lot of really um, conniving real estate developers will go and break up families and force a, a partition sale. And that's how they get their hands on very expensive property. And so um, this book explores what that concept does to um, communities in rural areas. It happens in big cities, rural areas, um, all over. It happens to primarily black and brown, of course, and then in rural Appalachian. That sounds fascinating. I'm, I, I'm, I've marked my calendar right. It's in mid-June, June 18th, right? It's coming out. I have that date right. <laughs> yeah, it comes out. Yeah, June 18th, and um, I'm really excited about this one. This one is really kind of personal, too. It, it deals with grief and loss, but also hope and resilience among the community. Um, and so I hope people will, will dip in and, and partake, because I think that there's um, not only kind of this whole exploration of what happens into communities, <laughs> these communities, um, but also there's a lot of humor in the book um, as well. Thank you, Wanda. This has been a production of the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our show, guests, or hosts, go to our website at houseofmysteryradio.com.